All right. Well, uh, we're not going to do the whole passage, so don't, don't get nervous about that. We're just going to do verses 1 uh, through 11 today. Uh, originally, we're going to do the whole thing and then just realize that that's just too much. And so uh, I'm sure you all want to get home eventually this afternoon. So we'll, we'll cut it down there. Uh, we are in a very familiar passage uh, this week. And sometimes that can be a little bit dangerous, right? Because we can kind of tune out. So like when you're on an airplane and they're going to introduce all the precautions that you have to take, you kind of start to glaze over, start thinking about other things, right? As they're telling you what to do when, if the plane is going down or the wing falls off and you got to parachute out and you're like, yeah, 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 right? Um, so I thought maybe if, if one of the ways we could keep it a little bit fresh is I'm going to speak in a British accent the whole time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, just wanted to make sure we had, we were all tuned, tuned in here. There we go. All right. But it is a familiar passage. May God give us uh, eyes and ears to hear it fresh. Uh, this morning and not uh, just glaze over. It's uh, what many call the triumphal uh, entry as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Um, and in our series, we, we've called the, the book of Mark the, the unexpected king because uh, Jesus has really turned the expectations of the disciples and the crowds and the readers on their heads. And especially the last several chapters is as Jesus is instructing that, yes, he comes as the authoritative one, the son of God, God in the flesh, yet he comes to serve and lay his life down and turns to his followers and say, this should also be your path. The way of Christ, the way of his followers is to serve and to suffer and to lay your life down. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And it's, it's turning everything upside down for the disciples because it's very unexpected. They thought the king would come and overthrow Rome and overthrow everybody that mistreats them and set back up that kingdom of David that they had so much longed for. And it was very unexpected. And just following that theme, uh, today we see that the king of peace enters the temple in a very unexpected way. And so he just carries on this theme of this unexpected way of the king of peace. Uh, Let's... uh, Check out the first section. Uh, I call this one, The King Our Souls Need. And that's verses 1 to 6. The King That Our Souls Need. Let's read that again now. When, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, or Bethphage, and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had told them, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So this is the king that our souls uh, need. Uh, I thought we could start off a little bit with geography here. Uh, every once in a while, it's good to just get oriented. Uh, so I just thought we'd take a look at some pictures here of where we are and where we are in the book of Mark here, okay? So here is the Gospel of Mark charted out. I don't know who actually put this together. But you'll notice 
got this cool pointer here. It starts off, uh, remember, he goes and gets baptized in the, uh, in the wilderness with, with John. But then 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And then he finally comes down. Where's 13? I don't see it. In the right? Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And then 14. Jericho we saw last week. And then finally, the rest of the book happens in Jerusalem. So the, the whole book of Mark, he has stayed outside of Jerusalem. Now, that's not true in the other Gospels. So it's not that Jesus never went to Jerusalem throughout those three years of ministry, because he did. But Mark is intentionally doing this to set up some tension of the fact that Jesus is coming to his temple to cleanse it. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 2. But the whole time, he's staying outside the city. The only time he interacts with, interacts with the leaders from Jerusalem is because they go find him. And now he's finally coming. And so now the, the tension has been built. We've, we've come to the place that we've been waiting for. Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem in verse 1. Um, here's this, these, we've got a couple cities that are named here, or villages. Here's Bethphage, or Bethphage, and Bethany. And notice here the Mount of Olives is right to the west of the city. So here's Jerusalem here, and the temple here. So... Uh, he would be coming, walking through both of these villages and then walking down the Mount of Olives. And as we'll see in the next several chapters, Jesus will come in. He'll do some ministry in the city here in the temple, and then he'll come back out and go to Bethany. And that's what he does every, every night. He goes back outside the city, and then he comes back into the city, always following that path up the Mount of Olives. And we'll see the Garden of Gethsemane is in there and such uh, in the Mount of Olives. And just another view, I guess I already said this. So. But that's that. We'll, we'll get a little bit uh, other stuff later. Uh, but that, that's where we are to get oriented. Uh, now, Jesus sends his two disciples, two of them, on a mission. We don't exactly know what village, probably the Bethphage, most likely, uh, on this mission to go get a colt. Now, I thought I'd ask the question as I was reading uh, this and just ask, you know, what, what sort of a mission is this? Because some, some have pointed out, like the instructions that he gives to his disciples are fairly minimal. Now, at this time, uh, Passover is happening, so you have people coming from all over filling Jerusalem. Some estimate between 1 million, some even estimate up to 2.5 million in the city or in the area. So whatever it is, uh, you have a mass group of people uh, filling up the area. And Jesus says, yeah, go over there and find a colt that's tied up that nobody's ran, uh, ever ridden on. And, I mean, that might, it feels like, to me, this would be like me saying, hey, go find a guy up at Miller Park during the, the, the Brewers game. He'll be eating a hot dog with a hat on. Okay? It's like a colt tied up. Like, there's hundreds of colts out there. So it, it feels very much like a needle in a haystack. Like, what, what, what are they going to do? Now, we don't know. Mark doesn't explain this. It very well could be that they would be given some sort of a sign uh, it is particularly calls out that as they walked, they saw one in the street tied up to a door. So maybe that was some sort of a sign to them. Uh, we don't exactly know. Uh, but if, it, if this is the case, if it's very much just meant to be a uh, needle in a haystack, it would be really uh, impressing upon the disciples the authority of Jesus and the omniscience of Jesus, that Jesus knows all things, right? And so he sets this up. Uh, to demonstrate that to them. So that's one possibility. Uh, others have wondered, is, is Jesus, is he robbing a cult? 
Right? He just tells his disciples, go in, find a colt, and tell them, it's mine now, buddy. Right? Is, 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 is he a thief? Like, what's going on here? So we should point out um, that culturally speaking, it would have been much more normal to share things and what's yours is mine. Uh, in other cultures today, that's much more common. Even when I was in Honduras back in 20, I think 2009 or something, um, that was, we were walking down, we were up in, on, in the mountains by the village, villages there, and as you just walk through, you know, someone's got a banana tree, uh, or not tree or whatever, bananas, these small little bananas, and you could just walk by and pick them all. And I even, I asked one of the hosts, I was like, can we do this? I was like, this is a guy's tree. He's like, oh yeah, you just, like, we all, like, we, we share our things, right? This is normal. Uh, so that wouldn't be totally abnormal, but even in ad addition to that, a king, it was very well known that a king, if a king needed something, it was, it was for his taking. So if, if, if this king needs a colt in order to ride into the city, it's free game, right? And that would have been very uh, normal. And another option here is that what Jesus actually gives to the disciples is a code word. And this theory, uh, which many hold, is the idea that Jesus actually set this up. So remember, Jesus would have been coming into Jerusalem throughout the time, not in the book of Mark, but he clearly did come into the area. Mary, Martha, uh, and uh, Lazarus, you, you know them, right? They lived in Bethany. So Jesus had a good friendship with them. He would have been in the area throughout the years. It very, it's, it's very well possible that he set, Jesus set this up with somebody that when I come and drink Passover, I'm going to need a colt. I'm going to send my disciples in. This is the code word. The Lord has need of the colt. Right? And so, that when, so then this guy tells his servants when this man comes in and he unties a colt, and if he says the Lord has need of the colt, then you let him have it. That's our code word. Now, that very well could be. It doesn't diminish at all what's going on. In fact, it very much highlights the fact that Jesus is intentionally trying to call the attention in a subtle way that he is going to now come in as a king. Because the other question that might, we might be asking is, why a colt? Why, why is he riding a colt into the city? And you may be familiar with what is being fulfilled here if you have copy of the scriptures, you want to turn back, you can go back to Zechariah 9. Jesus here is fulfilling a promise uh, about the king coming riding a colt. In fact, one of the other gospel writers particularly calls this out, that this is fulfilling Zechariah's promise in Zechariah 9. Zechariah was writing during a time after Israel had come out of Babylon. Uh, they were now rebuilding the temple, and he gives this promise in the midst of what he's uh, sharing to Israel. Chapter 9 in Zechariah, uh, beginning in verse 9. This prophet Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle, battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace. He, the king, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And so you see here why, why a cult uh, is in direct fulfillment of the Zechariah 9 passage here, that the king will come and he will ride a cult. 
here. So, but you you might still ask, like, well, why not why not a war horse, right? Uh, if a king comes on a war horse, it demonstrates his power and his, uh, his authority, which we see Jesus doing in Revelation 19. For those of you who were here during Revelation when we went through that, right? He's riding this great white horse coming with authority, and that would have been very custom custom uh, customary, very normal. For <laughs> For uh, a king to, to ride around on a horse, or horse and chariots, or have a nice long train of horses to demonstrate power and authority. So why a colt, though? So why would the, why would the king of Israel do that? Well, part of it is symbolic. What the king rides is demonstrating a, a message to the people. So one one of this aspect is humility, and we actually see this in Zechariah, in verse nine. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, as he humble and mounted on a donkey. So the kings of Israel were commanded not to amass uh, a lot of uh, horses or multiple wives or a lot of silver and gold, and they were to write down the, the book of the law and read it every year uh, so that they're uh, not moving away from God's commands and so they're not prideful above their other, uh, the other uh, Israelites. So the kings were meant to be humble uh, in coming uh, to God's people. And so this would, this would be demonstrating Jesus to the people, I come as one who is humble. This, this is the son of God, the one who is eternal, the one who knows all things and has all power. And yet he comes riding a bus into the city rather than a limousine. That, that's what's going on here. The humble king, which is totally uh, opposite of most of the ways we think about leadership and power. We want to demonstrate power. We do something, we have authority, we want to demonstrate that somehow. So everybody can see it. This is the very opposite. Jesus comes as the humble king. The, The other symbolic piece here, which is probably even stronger, is the idea that this king comes to bring peace. So you see that in verse 9, or verse 10, uh, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's in the north, the war horse from Jerusalem in the south, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. This, this king is coming to bring peace. So this, this uh, in Israel, uh, the war horse communicates power, and when a king rides a donkey through the city, it communicates God's peace. It's peace. So if you think about uh, Solomon, uh, when Solomon was uh, coronated as king, uh, David was on his deathbed, he's dying, and he, he sets it up so Solomon will be named and crowned as the king of Israel. Uh, David particularly gives uh, directions, go get my colt, go get my donkey, and have him ride it. Now this signifies two things. One, uh, that only Solomon now is king, uh, because only the king can ride the king's donkey. And that's actually another reason why probably uh, Jesus says, get a donkey that nobody has ridden. Because nobody's supposed to ride the king's donkey. But when Solomon rides David's donkey, it signifies that Solomon is king, not the other son. But even more important is the fact that Solomon's going to come and reign in peace. He's bringing peace to the people. So in the, in the Zechariah promise, that's very clear that as he comes, the king coming, riding a donkey, he brings peace to the people. In fact, not just to the people, but how far, is it, how far does he rule in verse 10? To the nations. 
His rule shall be from sea to sea, bringing peace. So that much is clear. The hard part is, what kind of peace is he talking about? Because you see, it, it, it seems to be in verse 10 that he's talking about uh, there will be physical peace, right? No more war. Won't need any war horses anymore. And that seems to be what the crowd thought. The problem is that's not the type of peace that Jesus said he was bringing at this stage. That peace is coming. New heavens, new earth, that peace will come. But the, there's a greater peace that's needed, that's a, a peace that's much more uh, needed for us than having peace among one another. And that's peace before God. You see, if Jesus was coming to bring military, political, social peace, he would have gone directly to Pontius Pilate, to Herod, and overthrown that system. Instead, where does he go? He goes directly to the temple. Because the peace we absolutely need, the king that we need, is not one to bring peace on earth physically, but we need a king to come and bring our, the peace that we need with God. We're all born into this world as enemies of God, children of wrath. And we need peace with God. And throughout the book, Jesus is, is talking about going to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of men, be handed over. And right at the end of that section, chapter 10, verse 20, 45, if you remember, Jesus tells us exactly why that's going to happen. He's coming to be a ransom for many. To be handed over, to pay the penalty for the sins before God for those who would trust in him. And brothers and sisters, this is the king that our soul absolutely needs. It might not be the king that we always want, we want a king to give us safety on earth, but the king we absolutely need is the king that brings peace before God. Let me ask you this morning, do you know this king? The, the king of peace that brings peace before God. You know, in a group this size, there's, there's no doubt probably people here who do not know Jesus as the king of peace who brings peace before God. And I would say to you this morning, if that's you, your greatest problem on earth is that you do not have peace with God. That, that problem might feel very distant, and it might feel very small compared to a lot of the other problems of the world. We have a lot of problems in our, in our world, in our lives, right? Relationships, jobs, resources, physical ailments, a lot of problems. But our greatest problem is the fact that we're going to face God. We've sinned against him. And we deserve his judgment because God is good. And your greatest problem on earth is the fact that you're going to face God. may not be today. may not be next week. But it will happen. And let us consider, what if all our earthly problems were taken away? Everything. For the, for the next 50 years, you could just live in nice peace, safety, happiness. There's still a greater problem you have to face after that end of that 50 years. And that's God Almighty, because we have sinned against him, and we deserve his judgment. Because God is good, he will punish those who do not have peace with him. Jesus describes that as a time of everlasting darkness, conscious torment. It's horrific to think about that for all of your days, you will encounter the wrath of God. And the scriptures call to you today 
that the king that you need is the one that brings peace with God. And the Lord Jesus said he comes to, to give his life as a ransom that for all who trust in him, he would die in your place and receive the punishment that you deserve before God so you would have peace with Almighty God. The chastisement that was put on him brought us peace, as Isaiah says. But I trust and hope that uh, many of us here, we do know this King of Peace. We've, we've, we've had our eyes opened by this King of Peace to trust him and lay our lives down uh, before him. And it's good for us to recall, brothers and sisters, you who are under the blood of Christ, you have peace with God today. You have sinned against God this week. You've thought thoughts about your spouse or coworkers or friends or family members that are not of the Lord. You've used your tongue in ways that have torn people down, not built them up. You've been selfish towards other people. We get infected by greed. We don't use our time well. We have all sinned this week and deserve God's wrath. We deserve to be kind of put off in the corner from God. And yet, because this king came to bring peace, riding on a colt, you and I can sit here today and say, we have peace with God. We don't deserve that. We come more like blind Bartimaeus, blind beggars. And yet, God has given us peace. And that is great news for us today. Your greatest problem has been solved. And like I said, I think sometimes this can be a time where our eyes glaze over, our ears go dull. We've heard that before. We know that. But brothers and sisters, sometimes we just have to stop and tell our souls, soul, you have peace with God. You know, the, the reason why we kind of wallow in guilt and shame of our sin is because we don't feel that. We wonder, do we really have peace? The blood of Christ was shed on your behalf. The eternal Son of God came riding on a colt to declare to you today, peace with God. And that will never improve. It will never diminish. Your full, pe full penalty has been totally Brothers and sisters, this is the king that our souls need. Part of the problem, though, is he's not always the king that we want. Our flesh desires. Our flesh desires a different type of king. And with that, we move into the next section of the passage, verse 7 to 10 of Mark. We read there that they brought, this is the disciples, brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed, followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And what you see here is a crowd that is ready. They are ready to come and make Jesus the king. They're excited. Let's go time, they say. And uh, this is, you can try to imagine a little bit from their sight, 
right? Remember, they're coming uh, from uh, Bethany uh, in Bethphage, or Bethphage, uh, which is right on the western uh, side of the Mount of Olives. And so at some point, they're going to come over the ridge and look down, and there it is. There's Jerusalem. But not just Jerusalem, but there's the temple, right? And so here, here's the more of the modern-day view of from the Mount of Olives. This would be the, the road that they're traveling. Uh, there you can see the, the dome on the rock. That, that would be where the temple is. These are all like tombs now. Uh, they, those wouldn't have been there. But this, is, this would have been a site that they come up and they see as they're looking down on the city. You can see this is where they would be coming, the Mount of Olives. And it's a direct view down. So you're standing up over the city, looking down. And it would have been a spectacular, beautiful sight for these folks. Uh, if you've ever seen that movie, Rudy, uh, one of my favorite movies, about that football player that went to Notre Dame, tried to get on the football team. Uh, anyhow, his dad, his dad uh, was a, loved Notre Dame football, watched all of his life, and has never been there. But Rudy's going to be suiting up this game, so his dad comes and makes the, the trip there to, to the Notre Dame field, if you remember this. And he walks through the tunnel, he comes up, he, he lays his eyes on the field down below, and he just stops and he goes, this is the most beautiful sight these eyes have ever seen. And... This is what it would be like for some of these travelers. They're finally seeing the temple. This is a view from the other side, uh, coming down so you can see it. They'd be coming down, coming down into the Kidron Valley, and then they'd make the, the trek back up to the Temple Mount. Here's a view from the other city, this or other side. Again, there's more pastures. What I like about this picture, uh, one, you can see just how massive the, the temple was. But I like this too here. As they come over the ridge, they're seeing the smoke, the pillar of, pillar of smoke during the day, pillar of fire by night, the sacrifices going up and rising. Uh, this would have been perhaps a view of what they would have seen. This is, this is a glorious sight for these folks. As they come over the ridge, they're finally here. And it stirs up excitement, right? And crowds stir up the crowds, and they get excited. And suddenly they, uh, they really get Excited, And so they, the first thing they do then is they, they throw their cloaks onto the, the donkey, throw the cloaks on the ground, sort of pulling out this red, red carpet. You know? <laughs> You're all right. Um, sort of like a, a red carpet that they're creating so that he can walk out. That would be our, our day. And this would actually have been customary. Uh, so if you think of, there's, this, there's a scene back in Second Kings uh, when uh, Elisha, the prophet, sends another prophet to go talk to Jehu. Jehu was going to be the next king over in Israel, and Joram, who was a descendant of Ahab, who was a very wicked king, that line was about to be destroyed, and Jehu was going to be put on the throne. So Elisha tells Jehu, you're going to be the next king. Well, Jehu's sitting there with his buddies, and his buddies find out that Jehu is now going to be the king of Israel, and the first thing they do, they take off their cloaks, and they put them on the ground so that Jehu can walk on them. So as to say, we are under you and we submit our lives under you. And that's sort of the picture that happens with these cloaks, the, the people throwing them on, down on the ground, so as to, to offer the, themselves to the Lord as the, the king to come rule over them. But then also these leafy branches, and one of the other gospel writers calls out the palm branches. Uh, the palm branch was a, a, a symbol of uh, victory, 
in particular military victory and political victory. So you can, you can hear in the crowd uh, already where they're headed with this. They, they're not thinking peace with God. They're thinking peace come in and destroy those who are oppressing. And as they continue uh, in verse 9, when they sing uh, Hosanna, which means deliver, deliver us, save us. Uh, th- this is coming from Psalm 118. Psalm 18 would be the final of what's known as the Egyptian Hallels. Uh, Hallel is the, the word for praise. The, they're called, Psalms 113 to 118 are known as the Egyptian Hallels. These would have been sung at Passover, sometimes some of the other festivals as well. Uh, they're called the Egyptian Hallels because they focus on God re- redeeming its people out of Egypt. And so they're recounting the story of God rescuing. And so what they're, they're doing here is singing, uh, to this king, we want you to bring that type of rescue to us. Free us. Set us free and set up the kingdom again. Especially as they go on, this is not part of Psalm 18. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Bring in that day. Overthrow everybody and set up the kingdom. So they're actually mis- misreading what's going on here. They're calling for a nationalistic salvation. A salvation that Jesus wasn't bringing. He was bringing peace with God. They want peace among the nations. They want, they want now Jesus to come and set up a government. And remember what James and John wanted a couple of passages ago. They want the, the best seats in that government. So in their whole mindset, it's this idea if we can get the right leader in place and we can have the right leaders around him, then we can set up the policies that we want and we'll be safe again. So that, that's what they're after here. And that, that's... That's a dangerous place to be, especially as Jesus, for the last several chapters, is saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm calling you to suffer. People aren't going to like you. And they're actually chasing something else. And that's a dangerous place to be because they're going to find themselves very discouraged as they think Jesus should give them a safe life, a cushy life, set up peace among the nations, and yet they're going to experience the exact opposite. And thankfully, we don't have that kind of thinking around here anymore, that we would look to Jesus to give us a safe and easy life, right? Thankfully, that, that thinking has been left long ago, that we wouldn't look to, you know, make sure we have the right leaders in place that would give us a better nation and we, we would be able to have the kingdom of God as we want it, make sure we get the right policies, and then, and then we're good. Oh, wait. The thinking is still around. And I'm not just thinking about the people out there. I'm thinking about this person right here. Reality is, I, I want sometimes a king that's going to come in with a sword and slice everything that brings difficulty in my life. That's the king I want. That's the king my flesh says, Jesus, come to be that king for me. Take all the difficulties, relational strife, financial hardship, physical ailments, and clean that up. That's what I need. That's not the king I need. I need the king of peace, the one that brings peace with God. All the other peace will happen, new heavens, new earth. Well, and then it continues. I call this last section, the king unnoticed. The king unnoticed. This verse 11 
is what we've been waiting for since chapter 1, verse 2. When he quoted Malachi saying that God is coming to his temple and he's going to bring judgment and salvation, he's going to make everything right again. We've been waiting for this. Jesus has been saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the temple. And finally, verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And I thought, did somebody rip a page out of my Bible? I thought, what, what was supposed to happen here? Like, what, what was that? I've been waiting for that for 11 chapters. And he goes in the temple, he walks out, he just evaluates things and leaves. So Mark leaves with a little bit of a cliffhanger. This whole scene is really set up for what's coming for the next several chapters. And I, I ask myself when I read that, like, what happened to that crowd? The crowd was singing all the way down the, the, all the, way down the Mount of Olives. Where are they? It seems to have dissipated. And why did nobody welcome him? He's supposed to come in as some king. Nobody says anything to them? He just kind of slips in totally unnoticed? How does that happen? That would be like, you know, if Brian, Brian and Donna Kenner come in from Sweet Communion and nobody even sees them. But there they are. <laughs> welcome, by the way. What a special treat. Like, how does this happen that he comes in and nobody says anything? It, it, it's almost as if, if the people were in the temple so busy doing all the religious activities that they miss the one person they should be celebrating. The Lord himself is right there in their midst. And they're too busy doing all the other religious activities activity. And you know, people do this every day around the globe. Religious activity and God's not there at all. Prayer, services, giving of resources, gathering as people, and God's not in it. God's not even recognized. And you know, it, it, is it possible for us to fall in that category as well? To do good things, healthy things as a people, and yet somehow we miss Jesus in the midst of it? I mean, you don't have to turn there, but I'll head there. Revelation 2. One of the critiques of the church in Ephesus. You remember that. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know your works. I know your, acti your religious activity. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. You, you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you've found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my, sakes, for my sake, and you have not grown weary. But I do have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. You see, what he's getting at here, too, it's not that stop doing the religious activities, stop doing the works. He says, keep doing that. Go back to that. Do that. But make sure the heart's there. Remember, Jesus is the one that says, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
It's, it's possible to do religious activity and yet miss the Lord Jesus, the one that we are here to worship. It's possible to read your Bible and totally miss the Lord. You know, you do it out of duty. Do it to try to earn favor from God. It's possible to, to quote scripture. The demons did it. The Pharisees did it. And they missed the Lord. It's possible to give money, time, resources, and do it out of the wrong heart. It's possible to attend services like this and miss the Lord. It's possible, and I find very scary, to write a sermon and totally miss the Lord. It's a, it's a terrifying reality to face. So why, why do people gather on a Sunday morning like this? Why do we gather? Well, we could do it because we're supposed to. You know, we, it makes us kind of feel good, at least for a little bit. It kind of gives us a little bit of pump up for a little bit, and then we can go about our week. It does, we don't have to let this impact the rest of the week, but this makes us feel good. Or sometimes people might gather because it's, this is more like a transaction. You know, we, we need to do this religious activity to keep God happy with us. And so we need to do this. It's like I put in this money into the, the vending machine and I get something back out, right? If I put in my time here, do some good behavior at home, then God's going to bless us. So it's more of this, just this transaction. Or it could be that we're here for experience. Right? I, want, I want to feel something. I want some spiritual buzz for the week. I want someone to wave a, a wand over and kind of just make me feel close to God. And especially if God could just get rid of all my, my junk and I just feel good. Now, truth be told, I get tempted with all those things. I get tempted to just make this a transaction or just go for after some experience. But there's a better way, brothers and sisters. The scriptures call us to come and just lay our lives down. Right? We come as blind beggars and say, Lord, I come here to worship you. You are the king who brings peace. I have nothing. I have sin that needs to be made, uh, forgiven. I have my, my weaknesses that, that need your grace upon them. I don't have anything. I come to worship you. I have my opinions that need to be reshaped according to what you say and what you say is right. And Lord Jesus, I come. You are the king. I am not the king. And what that, that whole mindset then is about the heart. It's not about an activity. It's not about a feeling. Those things happen. There are activities. Sometimes there is an experience, but that's not the point. It's the heart saying, Lord, I come under you. I'm taking my whole life and throwing it down as a cloak under your feet. Do with me as you wish. And as we sing here in a moment, Hail to the King in all his splendor and majesty. Hail to the King of kings, Lord Jesus, our God. And with that, we move to the Lord's table together. Uh, the Lord's table is meant to be a, a place where we experience physically the promise of God that Jesus delivered his life unto death to be a ransom for his people. We proclaim that back to God that we receive it and we trust the promise of the death of Christ on our behalf. If you're a follower of Christ here today who proclaimed Jesus as the King of Peace, the one who brought us peace with God, 
and are striving to walk in repentant faith, we invite you to come and partake uh, with us. If you're here this morning and do not follow Jesus as the King of Peace, then we ask that you not partake. But if, if you're walking in repentant faith in the Christ, we invite you to come, grab the elements, return to your seat, and we will partake together. <laughs>